Let me take a couple seconds. We'll talk about Anchor. Are you like me and you've thought about trying a podcast for a while? Either you just like talking into a microphone or you got something to say you just want to let out into the world or, you know, you've always wanted to do something with a friend. Okay. Anchor's the way to go. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. So you know it's definitely in your budget. I know money to get going can be an issue. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Really make it pretty easy peasy, which if you're like me and you don't know what you're doing, it's right in your wheelhouse. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more outlets. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. It really doesn't get any simpler. Download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. And we are up. This is Beacon Road Show, and I am your host, Rich Levesque. And I am honored today to welcome self-sabotage coach, Jenna Van Train. Glad to have you, my friend. So good to be here, Rich. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Me as well. And as always, just want to throw a reminder that you're doing the best you can today with what you have to work with, whether it feels like it or not. You are enough and you matter. Please take extra special care of yourself today and every day. Here on Beacon Road Show, everything is intended to come back to this message and to wrap around this message. Because ultimately, we're all doing our best to be our best and to be seen and heard, both by ourselves and by the world around us. Goal for this show is to honor that by speaking of how that works for us and how it can look. We'll share stories of how we're navigating that journey. We'll also talk about skills and tools that are available to help us along in our own journeys. And that's the thing. There's no one way for anything. We just have to find what works for each of us in our own ways and on our own terms. And like all things, treat this like a, like a buffet table. Remember those? You know, take what clicks, leave the rest. And however you come about finding this little corner of the world and whatever way you use it, it's an honor you're taking the time to join us. Hey, Jana. Um, all right, so let's talk about what exactly is a self-sabotage coach. I mean, I've got an idea in my head, but I want to see you know, where you take it and, and bounce off of that. Right. So it started out, and I think when you and I met, I had been a health and wellness coach. Yes. And I still absolutely have all of those skills, education, certification, and experience to do that. But what I've found as I work with people, um, it may not be true for everyone in the in the world or on the planet, but if you're in any kind of 
first world country, North America, Europe, and you have the means to be considering reaching out for a health and wellness coach, I don't think there's anybody that I met who didn't already know the basic foundation, which is that we need to eat good, clean food. We need to drink plenty of water. We need to get adequate sleep. We need to move our body. And we should have some form of spiritual practice, whatever that may be for the person. Could be meditation, could be religion, could be anything. So that's the foundation of what we all need to be healthy. And everyone I've worked with knows these things and is still not doing them. So what I really help people do is kind of peel back the layers of the onion of why, why are we not doing the things we know we need to do? We, you want to be healthy. It's why you reached out to me. You want to you wanna work on some area of your life. Um, we would start with health, but sometimes it would veer off into relationships or career or whatever is really going on. And what is the underlying foundation that we want to improve, but we are not doing what we know we need to do? And so then I help peel back that and find out what's really going on. And it all, it, it almost always goes back to some, some wound or some sabotage or maybe something that happened to us even as far back as childhood, which once upon a time I thought was ridiculous. We're adults, you know, we're not children anymore, but we learn foundational lessons and they direct our thinking um, as we go forward in life. And so sometimes we need to look at what did I learn that kept me safe, that got me through a terrible situation and it, it, it's survival, but it's not thriving. Like if I repeat that same thing now, I'm not going to get to where I need to be in the future. And and how to how to graduate from that without causing any further damage. Like if I had some survival mechanism, there is no reason for me to beat myself up that I'm still doing it. I need to honor that and and thank the little Jana that that figured out how to survive and then move forward in a healing way to, to the next step of, of, of growing and just, you know, finding a new way to do it that's gonna work to get me to the next goal. The first goal was to survive whatever happened. The next goal is to thrive and be healthy in whichever area of my life that I'm not being thriving and healthy in. And that you know, opens up so many different avenues. I mean, it, it's ultimately a big spider web, you know, yeah. And I think it's really, um, I think it's coming a lot more, you know, commonplace knowledge now that, you know, a lot of the foundations that we learn, you know, we have them in our head by like age seven, I believe the number is for most people. And, you know, while things can always be unlearned, it takes a lot more work because, you know, that, you know, it's, it's all, you know, jammed in there and there's so much you have to take apart and you know it you know and it's you know and we all have these different layers and so much of the time it's not even what we think it is like we might you know I, I imagine you've got to have people coming in and when you start mentioning self-sabotage, you might be like, all right, well, I lost my job or I had this, you know, really crappy divorce or things like that. And, but then you find out that the divorce triggered this thing that happened when you were like nine and it, it everything just kind of goes back and they just, it's like a movie that keeps replaying itself. Right. And, and it, even going along the example you laid out there, it's not that the divorce triggered something when you were nine. 
It's that getting married to a person who had those patterns that were familiar to you when you were nine. The divorce was almost inevitable if the self-healing didn't happen prior to the marriage, right? So if I'm coming into right. a marriage with my childhood wounds and, and someone else is coming in with their childhood wounds and we're both coming in like, I'm broke, why don't you fix me? It's not going to happen, right? The, it, there's no way for that to be a healthy outcome unless both parties within the marriage are willing to look in, inward and fix what's broken inside of ourselves, right? I need to come to my relationship as healed or healing. I mean, I, I'm not going to be walking on water, right? And even if I do walk on water, my feet are wet. There's nothing perfect, right? But right. at the same time, the 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 thing with any relationship is that I need to come into it healed, not expecting you to heal or fix me because that's not possible. No outside human being can heal or fix my childhood wounds. And it's terribly unfair for me to put that on someone else because no matter how much they love me, like it's, it's not a possibility for another human to do that. And so we, we kind of need to be working on our own. And that's not to say that you know, all my wounds are all healed now, but as long as I'm aware of what they are and working on that and being my best self, then what I bring to the relationship is very different than if I'm aware of all the things that don't you do this and don't you do that. And my parents did this and my mother did that. And then now I'm just project, I'm bleeding all over you and you haven't cut me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. Yeah. So when that, plus you're also putting so much pressure on yourself to mm -hmm. be this perfect, you know, to heal whatever it is, you know, cause you might be trying to fix your marriage, but also trying to fix your relationship with your, with your dad. Mm -hmm. And where none of that, you know, you know, you can't fix your dad. You can't fix your husband. You know, you can right. fix yourself and hope that your husband sees that and wants to do this, you know, wants to do the same. And then, you know, go from there. If they do and they're willing to do the work, then that's phenomenal. And you might be, and then you can kind of, you know, rebuild that. But if they don't, you may come to a point where you have to make some choices. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah. Because we're, if, if one person is on a path of personal growth and, and attempting to reparent themselves and become an, a, a fully responsible adult for their own life, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all that. And then the other person is not trying to grow and become an adult and be responsible for themselves in those ways it could become dysfunctional where you've got one adult and one child, maybe not chronologically, maybe they're the same age, but one is trying to stand on their own two feet and be an adult and one isn't. And that, that can, I, that's rarely going to have a healthy outcome. Yeah. No, can't. So, yeah, so we just kind of work on, yeah, all the stuff inside that we're, that, and it's not even necessarily so complicated there's basic patterns that we do that are, that are safety based. We, we, when we're children and you know, we're like three feet tall and 90, 40, 50 pounds or four or five feet tall and 80 pounds. And there's an adult that's like six feet tall and 200 pounds. That's terrifying. You're going to say and do whatever you need to say and do. So this person doesn't yell at you that they feed you. They let you live in the house. Like, and we learn these patterns that, that might be a little dysfunctional and maybe aren't serving us in our adult life. And so how do we just honor that and then say, okay, well, in my adult life today, 
I don't need to act like that. I don't need to be a constant people pleaser and I don't need to, you know, be unhealthy, which isn't to say I'm not going to do nice things for people, but it's going to be coming from a place of generosity as opposed to a place of fear. Right. And it's a place where, yeah. you know, it feels right to you and you're honoring, you know, what's a boundary to you. You're not letting what you think is your need to be generous, to be kind, allow the world to use you as a welcome mat. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I know with myself, that's been a very hard thing to learn. And it still, you know, it still comes up at times. I mean, it's you know, part of being human, but, you know, kind of learning that when to say no, when to put the brakes on, because, mm -hmm. You know, people aren't necessarily going to, you know, especially those that their wiring has taught them that what they need to do to survive is to latch on to somebody and hang on to, with all they got. Right. They're not going to be wired to let go. So what ends up happening, unfortunately, is you have to do the work for them for your own protection. And right. then... You know, but you have to be healthy enough to do that. You know, if you're somebody in that, you know, codependent, narcissistic, you know, you know, that tango, it's, you know, and you don't have those boundaries. That's when, you know, things just evolve into a nightmare. Indeed they do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and it, you know, as with all areas of everything, what the fields I've gone into are exactly the things that I've had to look at in myself. So, you know, before I went into coaching or let's just go back to the health and wellness coaching before I did that, mm -hmm. I had gone through a period where I had been terribly unhealthy and then through nutrition and juicing and a whole bunch of lifestyle changes. And I don't even like the word diet. It's just like quit eating crap and started eating actual food. Then I got healthy. And then I went through this period where it was almost like, you know, newfound religion or something. I just wanted everyone to get healthy. Right. And, right. and it's natural that you, you know, you have this new information. It's like, this is amazing. Everybody needs to know this. You know, <laughs> of course you're going to want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then as I started working with people and come to realize there's nothing new under the sun, we all kind of know the basics and sure. Maybe somebody's concerned about this particular issue and they want to know which foods are good with that. And, and if, you know, that's a basic thing I can help with. It's also a thing that a Google search will find. So right. it, it's not like this information isn't readily available. So as I work with people, I find really the, inf the, the situation is self-sabotage. And then as I, you know, kind of look back at my own life, well, okay, this story of being unhealthy and getting healthy to become a health and wellness coach is cute, but how did I get unhealthy in the first place? Self-sabotage. Right. Of course. Because that's that I was like eating my feelings in a, in a dysfunctional relationship. And, uh, and, and so it's kind of like the next evolution of what was the root cause of getting healthy? Well, I was eating unhealthy. Well, what was the root cause of that? Well, that was self-sabotage and what, you know, and just really having a lot of life experience that I can bring forward to help people. Cause there's, You'll you'll start seeing it coming out as I'm shifting my focus from the health and wellness, but there's a lot of overcoming and lessons learned that I can share with people that, you know, there's a lot of things I've experienced that people think that they're the only one because 
maybe it's not being talked about openly and I'm not afraid to talk about openly any of it. And then that will create a safe space where we can, we can look at what damage was caused in that situation, what lessons were learned that absolutely were essential to your survival, but are now holding you back. And how can we grow from there? And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a fabulous shifting of the perspective just to, to be able to help people. It is. And to, jump on what you were saying about how a lot of times people think that, you know, they're alone and they'll beat themselves up for how, and you know, you know, shame and embarrassment and guilt are powerful and they keep you from realizing, you know, once you kind of step out of there, you know, yeah, maybe there might be somebody with something to say, but for every one person that has some, you know, snotty comment or, you know, a judgment, there's easily 10 that are going to you'd be like, yeah, thank you for saying that. Me too. I felt the same right. thing. I've had this exact same experience. I got there because of this. And we don't realize just, you know, because, you know, a lot of it too, it, it's kind of, you know, we're taught that we're on our own and we've got to figure it out. And sometimes we don't know, you know, we're in our own echo chambers sometimes we don't know what we have to figure out and mm -hmm. you know that's when ego is you know that that's right in the ego's wheelhouse it's going to tell you hey, you're, you're on your own you got nobody else they're just gonna point and laugh you how can you be so stupid like all these voices i mean you know and they have different names it could be you know depending on you know who in your past used to kind of you know get in your ear like that and you know it you know, feels familiar and you just kind of take that on for yourself and what, and then, you know, you know, people are just, you know, sitting in their own pain and misery. And then, you know, you take a step out and then you realize, holy shit, there's a lot of people feeling a lot of the same stuff. And, you know, I, you know, obviously I go through it a different, you know, way. It's more of, uh, you know, you know, as, you know, a writer, you know, creating content. But as I started to put stuff out there about my own experiences, um, you know, it was, you know, it was scary. I figured I was, you know, I, my first thought was I was going to get called in the office and, you know, basically, you know, sent on my way and, um, what ended up happening was my inbox got exploded with people being like, yeah, that's me. This is me. And, you know, you would be, if, you know, you kind of knew the, you know, my lists <laughs> and you try to figure out who you think the people would be like, you couldn't guess it. I, I was like, you, you got your shit together. How you, you like, you to like, what so yeah you don't know what people are carrying until you kind of give them that permission to share it with you right absolutely and i know it's it's very different like the world that my kids are growing up in you know i've got one in their mid-20s and i got a couple teenagers and even that 10-year gap is pretty significant what what they've gone through but then when you look at what it was like for people in my generation growing up 
like you talked 60s, 70s, even into the 80s. It was just normal that you do not talk about what's going on in the house outside the house. Like you don't do that. Like whatever it is, kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like what happens at home stays at home. And so there was no permission to talk about any of that stuff. If there was any kind of abuse going on, there was no permission to talk about that kind of stuff. Like today, I feel like the pendulum's almost swung the other direction with the helicopter parenting. But, and, and maybe that's a natural reaction because there was a whole generation of kids enduring a lot of abuse that weren't allowed to talk about it. And so now... Nobody now they're to trying to do out. right what was done. They're trying to fix a right the best they can with what they know how. And it kind of went the other way. Right. And it's gone too far because now, like, you see all the all the memes and videos and things like, you know, we would leave in the morning and go ride our bikes and not come home till the streetlights came on. Our parents didn't know where we were. There were no cell phones. We drank out of garden hoses, all these things, right? And look at us, we survived. And then we make fun of the kids today who, in fact, we raised to live in the society where they're not allowed to go ride their bike. They're not allowed to go be free. They're not allowed to drink out of the garden hose. And God forbid they should try to do these things. Somebody on the street's going to call child services on you. And now you've got a now you've got the government trying to make sure you're a good parent because you mm-hmm. let your child ride their bike. And And so I don't know what the happy medium is, but I feel like the complete Nobody knows where their children are is uh, might be a bit much, but also no child is allowed to go ride their bike to the store and back is also a bit much. Right. And, and yeah, how are we going to, how are we going to expect these kids to have any independence, stand on their own two feet and get out there and do anything if we never even let them do anything? That's on us. We overcompensated based on our wounds and now we're creating a whole different type of wounds and there's a whole lot of anxiety depression like kids are afraid of everything because we taught them to be afraid of everything and how do we teach them to have confidence in themselves is a different conversation that i think would be appropriate for all the generations to have because like you said we're all doing the best we can with what we have it's just we're trying to protect our children from all what happened to us Mm -hmm. and inflicting on them a level of control that might be a little unhealthy absolutely i once that i think of um Simon Sinek had um, talked about that, you know, talking about how in a lot of cases, you know, employers are taking on, um, you know, kids and, you know, they, they don't know what they don't know. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of, you know, parenting that kind of has to go on in the workplace. And a lot of the employee, you know, there's employers that, you know, complain about it and he's, you know, and the basic point of his message and, you know, it's out there on YouTube for anybody to find. And basically, look, this is what it is. This is, you know, we chose to raise them this way. And now they don't have the tools they need. And you know what? We own it. And we're going to have to help. Now, we're going to have to help them out. And that's just the way it's going to be, basically, is what. And right. I think what you'll see going forward is you'll probably see, you know, that pendulum kind of go back as, you know, as, you know, was it Gen Z, I think they call them, like, as they start to, you know, have families of their own in the next decade or so, I think you might, you'll see that pendulum kind of swing back because, you know, I mean, they know that the participation trophies don't mean anything. That's why they're freaking buried under the bed the whole time. They, you know, they know, they're not, you know, they may not have the tools, but 
you know, these kids aren't stupid. They know. Right. Yeah. Eighth place on a team of eight doesn't, doesn't, it, it doesn't warrant a trophy and it devalues the first, second and third place trophies. Like there really is a lot to be said on both ends of winning the trophy because you earned it mm-hmm. and also not winning the trophy because you didn't earn it and still having a healthy self-respect afterwards, even if you just tried and didn't win, I feel like I w- there's more self-esteem in, in the learning lesson of, of not achieving and call it failing, like you failed. Like not 90% of things is trying and falling and failing. And what was that thing with Edison tried 100 ways to do the light bulb? He said he never failed. He just found 100 ways that didn't work, right? Right. And we need to, we need to restore the, the emphasis on efforting versus trophying. Like the trophies are meaningless without effort. And that's the thing. There's, you know, learning how to lose in so many ways is so much more important. Like learning how to win. I mean, that's, it's easy. You know, you get the accolades, you get all this stuff, you get all this, you know, reinforcement and, you know, that's easy street. But learning how to lose, it's learning how to not identify yourself as a failure and letting that be like the final judgment. Like I, you know, I used to do videos back in the day and I would talk about, you know, failure doesn't exist. And in a way, like, and in that realm, it doesn't have to like nothing's ever a final judgment so you know it's an opportunity to learn okay this didn't work how can i aim this what um what went you know what went wrong was there something on the outside that i need to learn to control for did shit just happen and you know what when sometimes it's just a matter of you know what things go wrong learning how to let that roll off and not take that on there's also you know okay, when do you kind of get that, that point where like, okay, maybe this isn't the path for me, you know, maybe, you know, maybe base, you know, maybe baseball is just not my thing, maybe, but I really, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, theater or, you know, staying, or music or something like that, you know what? maybe this is just not my thing and maybe it's time to go explore something else. Like there's always lessons and opportunities and, you know, there's so many nuggets in losing that we don't take the opportunity to see. Right. Well, and I would submit two more things. One, even if you're not winning trophies in baseball, if you enjoy it, being on the team without a trophy is perfectly fine just play for the play for fun's sake if you like baseball right it i mean for sure if you have another interest go after it but it doesn't mean you don't do it if it's fun right it could be a hobby and the other thing when we when you when you let off with winning is easy and losing has all the lessons i dare submit that there is an art to winning as well because you because if we let that go to our head then that's when ego comes in. It's when the fear of losing becomes a bigger deal. And it's also when potentially arrogance or being unkind to whoever didn't win. So let's say a hundred people try for something. One guy wins. Is he going to be graceful in this? Is he going to show respect for everyone who tried? 
or is he going to be a jerk to everyone who didn't get the trophy that he got? Right. There is definitely lessons to learn in winning as gracefully as losing gracefully. Like they both have lessons in them, not getting too big, that not getting too low. Excellent point, Jana. And, you know, and, you know, in the, you know, in the aftermath of it, the assumption that, you know, that's what's just going to happen because, you know, hey, look at me, you know, mm-hmm. somebody's going to catch up. You know, without go back fail. to that whole hair and the tortoise story and you now the Aesop fable. Yeah. Yeah. And and now because I won, does that mean that if I lose next time that I'm even somehow a bigger loser than if I hadn't won? Is my ego wrapped up in this trophy? Because that's a dangerous place to be. It could be more dangerous than losing it, really. It can be, yeah. Yeah. Pedestals, um, pedestals are dangerous. So we need to to take both with a grain of salt. A win is nice. It feels good. Absolutely. A loss can be unfortunate and we learn our lessons, but neither one should become our identity because tomorrow's a different day and neither the win nor the loss is involved in the next day. It's a new day. Right. So what I'll do is I can kind of walk back what I was saying a little bit. I think in the immediate, you know, winning is still obviously the easy, but yeah, but just as you said, there's the other... Um, elements to it that, you know, that are going to come later. What comes from that? What are the next steps? And then that's where the, you know, where a lot of those lessons are going to, you know, be taught and, and be learned or not learned. And, you know, that's, you know, where the traps are. Yeah, that's the kicker. That is where the traps are. Did we, did we learn our lesson or didn't we? And the universe is so much fun with like, oh, you didn't learn the lesson? Here, let's play this game again. And we'll keep playing the same uh, game until we learn. Uh, For sure. Yeah, the names and faces might change, but the situation, um, yeah, it's, it's going to look very familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that almost loops us right back to where we started with the whole self-sabotage because we recreate the patterns we're comfortable with, even if they're not healthy. We pick partners and relationships that recreate that feeling of home, even if home didn't feel good, just because it's home. And so we have, you know, that's where the real, that's where the work comes in is making someplace safe, feel mm-hmm. home, if childhood what wasn't safe. Yeah. And that was exactly, it was, you know, some comment, yeah, content rather that I was, you know, working on a little earlier that'll go up later and kind of, you know, talking about, you know, for people when, you know, if it's not safe to be, you know, seen in your own, in your element, you're going to go back to what, you know, you're going to go back to what safety is and safety, you know, safety for you may make absolutely no sense to me. To me, it might look flat out dangerous because, you know, it could involve going back into a, unhealthy relationship or back into addiction or, you know, going back into whatever box, but what it com- it is, it's the devil, you know, and it may yes. be dangerous, but you know how to navigate it. Yes, that is exactly it. We get comfortable in these patterns, no matter unhealthy they are. And then even if we take two steps out and, and go into new waters, it's so uncomfortable in the new waters that we jump right back in the pool. 
And, mm-hmm. and so finding a way to get out of the water and feel safe out of the water, because maybe there's a new tribe over here that'll treat you right. It just having the courage to get out of the water and stay out of the water long enough to find your new tribe is, is the deal because ultimately we, we do, we're social beings. We, we need fellowship and friends. And if all of our friends are in a unhealthy vibe, then we're going to be doing unhealthy things. But if we can find our way, you know, walk the lonely road in between to the next tribe and they're all doing healthy things, we're going to do healthy things. Nobody, nobody's going to go into the healthy tribe and sit down and start eating junk food. They're going to be like, they, they would feel, and they would feel awkward. They would be afraid they stand out. All those same fears that kept them being unhealthy in the unhealthy tribe would actually cause them to be healthy in a healthy tribe. Because we, we, we really do want to fit in. We just need to find the tribe that we want to fit in and, and make sure that we're vibrating at the same level. So that, that whole thing where, you know, our parents used to say, you know, it matters who you hang out with. And we thought that's ridiculous. Johnny's great. Janie's fun. No, it matters. Cause what, what Johnny's going to do, you're going to do. And what Janie's going to do, I'm going to do. And, and we, it, it is important to pick our friends wisely. You know, someone who's uplifting someone who, if I come tell them something, well, first of all, it shouldn't be talked about without me saying it's okay to be talked about. But then also, mm-hmm. if it is talked about with anyone else, is it in the context of, well, you know, she's really struggling with this. How can we help? Or is it in the context of, can you believe she said this? And like a whole bunch of gossip and slander and back, right? It's like, what kind of friends yep. do we do we surround ourselves with? And are they uplifting? And are they moving us forward? And if they're not, do we have the courage to break that tie, no matter how familiar and comfy it is? Yeah. And that's, you know what? You know, it's one of those things that, you know, and speaking for my, yeah, speaking for my own experience, it's easy to talk about, but it's, it's really hard in the process. And you know what? Straight up, it can be very lonely, especially if, you know, whatever that, you know, that next tribe that you find, if A, you haven't found them yet, or B, you know, even, and I'm not saying this to, you know, I mean, absolutely no disrespect because I've got, you know, these online tribes of people that I've, you know, that become family in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but there's a difference between, you know, being online and being physically present. That's just how how it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. So, and, you know, it's very, and, you know, if you're in a place where, you know, a lot of, you know, but A, there may not be a lot of people. I mean, you know, myself, I grew up in a small town, so I kind of, you know, everybody knows everybody. And, you know, a lot of people kind of, you know, they run in the same circles and kind of do the same things. And, you know, if, and then, you know, you know, somebody decides, Hey, you know, this isn't my, you know, my jam, I'm more of a, you know, city thing and what the city has to offer and all this other stuff that you're not going to find, you're going to end up having to, you know, kind of make that lonely, you know, trek off to the city, you know, you're going to accept that it's time to move on. And you know what, you know, it, it stinks because, you know, in the process, if the town's all, you know, then, you know, it means going and, you know, 
having to walk away and go find something new and scary and uncertain. You don't know how it's going to play out. Are they going to, you know, are they going to like you? Are they going to fit in? Are you going to be like that new weird kid that doesn't, you know, quite click? And you're going to be the one that's kind of sitting over in the corner at recess, you know? You know, all these things from when we were kids, they still, you know, we still feel them as adults. Absolutely. And there's pros and cons with both scenarios that you mentioned, right? So in the in mm-hmm. the small town where everybody knows everybody, they also remember when you were seven years old and something happened and, and nobody lets you forget it 30, 40 years later. Mm-hmm. So so it's like it's almost impossible. Here here we are trying to do personal development or whatever it is. And Johnny down the street won't let you forget when you were seven and fell off your bike. Like, I mean, you haven't fell off your bike in 15 years, but he won't let when you were seven go. Nope. And, and it's, it, it can be hard. And then on the flip side of that, you realize, okay, well, you know, there's only 500 people in this town or a thousand people in this town. And they all knew when I was seven and Johnny won't shut up. So <laughs> I'm going to move to this other town. And now I'm the new kid. And now that's like, like, how do I fit in? Do I say something? Do I not say something? What it, you know, and there's definite pros and cons with all of that. And, and it's just like, are we essentially going to do what we need to do on the inside? What personal growth we need to do on the inside to be okay in either town? Because it doesn't matter what Johnny's doing and it doesn't matter really what the new town's doing. It matters what I'm doing. Because yeah. I could be happy in either town, and I could be depressed in either town. Yeah, because wherever town you go to, you know, you're still carrying your crap. And or not. Yeah, or exactly. And, you know, that's you know, really a, an important piece because if you kind of got your stuff together, it, it doesn't matter. You can kind of, you know, you can connect with, you know, what's going on in small town. You can connect with, you know, big city. You can kind of see why you can kind of, you know, talk, you know, kind of talk from like that, you know, the Eagle eye view, um, you know, it's a you know, mutual friend of ours actually used in a post one. And I fell in love with that phrase because mm-hmm. I think it's um, really, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of a view that I have with a lot of people. Like I can, you know, whether I can completely disagree with their take and their belief in something, but I can also be like, all right, this is where they're coming from. I can, I can pick up this from their experience and this because of a, B and C that they, you know, that they knew for them, this belief feels absolutely right. You know, mm-hmm. and, and then I can kind of see over here. All right. You know, they're, you know, hard in their belief, but because their experience sent them X, Y, and Z, it becomes really easy for them to see it an entirely different way. And what's really funny is so many times when you have people that are on such polar extremes, they have really so much of their mindset is so similar. It's just their life experiences take them entirely different directions and they think that they have nothing in common until. You know, you kind of put them together and you talk about anything but, and all of a sudden you realize that that's not the case. Right. And they're both going back to that same safety-based, like our brain is literally designed for survival and safety. 
So even on the same topic, they take the same set of facts and come to a different conclusion. It's just based on their perception of what's going to be the safest and best. Like there's, there's got to be three or four different hot topics right now that I'm not even going to mention, but mm -hmm. they're volatile and people get excited and they get very aggressive. And if we were to take people on either side, they believe they're doing the right thing passionately, vehemently, and fervently. Yes. And they don't know why the other person, why the other side is being like that because they're just so sure that they're right. And both sides are that way. Like they, 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 they think they're good people. They, they, they want the best. Um, two or three of the issues have to do with health. Some of them have to do with children. I would guarantee you the moms on both sides love their children. It's just the moms on this side think this is how you keep your children safe and healthy. And the moms on this side are like, well, this is my experience and this is how I want to keep my children safe and healthy. And they're so busy screaming at each other that they're not listening to each other. And, and they, and of course they want their children safe and healthy, but they're not listening to each other. And I have, I have actually had a complete 180 in my views on a few of the hot topics recently. Well, I, my, my, my 180 wasn't recently, but the topics are hot now. And it's kind of interesting because I can see where three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, I would have actually been on the other side of the hot topic that's going on today. And so I totally understand where they're coming from. And I also see it the opposite because I, over a period of time, took the time to get curious and, and to investigate, like, what if I am wrong? What if I, what if I'm not right about everything happening in the world today? What if, what if the world according to Jana isn't a hundred percent accurate because it's all from my filter, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the tools that I kind of created for myself, I haven't seen or heard anyone else talk about this yet, but I noticed one day when I was driving and I think a lot of people do this, like you're having a disagreement or a, or a hot situation with somebody and just driving down the road in my mind, I'm having the conversation with somebody or building a case against them or whatever it is. And I become the world's greatest prosecution attorney in the world. I could nail them to the wall with all the reasons they're wrong. What they did is wrong. How they did it is wrong. Why they did it is wrong. What everything it's just, they're just wrong. And then in the middle of all this, my reactions to whatever it is they did, on the flip side, I am also the world's greatest defense attorney because what I did is to be expected when they do this and, and they hurt me this way. And of course I did that. And I'm protecting my family and, and all the good things about me, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I, what I kind of did or try to do whenever possible, when I catch myself, if I catch myself building a case, what I try to do is flip the tables. So can I be a defense attorney for that person? Why are they doing that? What, what did I do that they feel triggered? What happened that they felt that was the right thing to do? And then, I mean, I don't want to say prosecuting myself, but an accountability inventory, perhaps. Like, what did I do in here that led to these escalations? So I'm, you know, I'm defending myself in terms of, well, I'm protecting my family or I'm protecting myself, my home, my income, my job, my whatever. All about me, right? So... Mm -hmm what did I do that potentially jeopardized all those things? And what are they do that they feel they're defending those things for themselves? Like, and if I can switch the roles, it's usually a little easier and it's hard. It took me, I don't know, decades of building cases against people to be able to recognize that I was building cases. 
Like it was just like a hobby in my head. Like if there's a stressful thing, here's all the reasons why I think I'm right and, and you're wrong. Like it, it took a conscious like aha moment to realize I was doing that. And then it took several months later to realize that I could flip the tables and try to see it from their perspective. And sometimes I still come out on the conclusion that, nah, I, I think what I'm doing is, a, is, you know, maybe I could do it differently. Maybe I could be more gentle. Maybe I could, you know, find a different way to do it. But at the end of the day, there are certain principles that I'll stand by. You know, if I'm, if I'm wrong, one of those principles is to admit it and just go and apologize, make amends, try to fix that. But if I think right. I'm right, maybe it's to approach the person in a different way of understanding where they're coming from. And also, this is where I'm coming from. And I kind of still got to hold the line on my values. And, and even that can take away the hostility of a situation, even if we agree to disagree. But it's, yeah. it, you know, it's hard. It goes back. To, I mean, like somebody taught me... Uh, my my first or second real job out of college, they actually paid for everyone to go to the Stephen Covey Seven Habits of Highly Effective People thing, like back in the nineties. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm not sure if it's the first one, but there's only seven. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. If I had gotten that, then I could have saved myself decades of building cases. Like right. Because ultimately what I just said boils down to that, which was its own little aha moment right here while we're talking. But that's what it comes down to. Like if, if the world were to pause and try to understand what the other people that are so heated, like why are they so heated on their side while I'm so heated on my side, we could maybe have a conversation that maybe it wouldn't be 100% what either of us wants. But if we got 80% each, it'd be a lot better than the 0% we're getting now. Yeah. And exactly, it's what it is. It seems like there's this con a combination of, you know, people just desperately trying to be heard. Yes. And, you know, and as it as the frustration mounts, I think, you know, you know that you know, the amygdala kind of takes over and it kind of turns into fight or flight. And once you get to that point, you know, there's just no more, you know there's no more frontal processing here. There's no, none of that. You're just, you know, all of a sudden you like, you know, it, you know, the amygdala takes it over. Like, you know, like the whole, you know, Daniel Goldman, right. you know, hijacking thing. And all of a sudden you're just like bear, bear. All you see is bear fight, bear, get away mm -hmm. from bear. And, you know, at that point, it's, you know, there's no save in the conversation. Um, I started getting into a habit some time back and I'm not perfect at it, but I've really started to learn when I kind of start, you know, when it starts going that way, I just ask them, I started asking people like, no, I'm not going to take, I, I promise I'm not going to take it to argue. This is for my own understanding. How did you get here? What, you know, why do you see it this way? Just kind of tell me a little bit more about, what you're at, you know, A, that's a really good test to know if you're dealing with a troll or somebody that actually has, you know, beliefs and passions, because if it's the latter, they'll tell you. And, right. you know, and that they know that they can, you know, and, 
you know, and, you know, when they, t- you know, they'll tell you and, you know, there'll be times where it's like, you know, and I'll just kind of take it on myself. Like, all right, you know, I'm not going to, you know, and not take apart their beliefs, but I'll just be like, okay, all right. I can see that. I kind of get where you're coming from. This is what my experience has shown me. And, you know, I see this, I see that this is kind of what I saw, but I need to look at what this thing you're showing me over here, because I don't think I've ever looked at it that way before. I think I need to go do some work on that. And I, you know, and I think so much gets solved with everybody being heard. And I think that's where you start getting the little loophole, the little opening where you can actually, you know, find under, you know, maybe not necessarily find common ground, but at least start finding understanding and then kind of building from there. Right. And, and, and I think everyone watching this is going to be in agreement that they want to be heard. And the struggle we come up with, or the struggle that I had in the beginning and still some days, but I feel like it's gotten better is being willing to be the first listener. Like, are you willing to offer the other person the grace to speak first and to be heard first and to be validated first so that they get to the place where they feel heard and then they can hear you because you respected them enough to like, who's willing to listen first. And then that is where I think a lot of progress could be made too. Yes. Big time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Looking at the clock and, um, Let's kind of, you know, into these, like, these, you know, really, you know, serious, really important conversations. And then completely just take a side turn and go into something a little later. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, but I, what I'm going to have is I'm going to throw a few questions at you. It's, um, you know, similar to what um, James Lipton or Lewis Howes would do at the end of their interviews. Okay. Um, just first thing that comes to mind for, you know. If you could jump into a, any sort of a time machine and experience one event in person, what would it be? Mm, I should have really pondered this more because I've seen you ask other people that question. I was, I was hoping for a new one because I don't have a good answer. But I think um, two that jump into mind right off the top would be either marching with Martin Luther King Jr. Because right now I see a lot of people posting it where he's marching and saying, this is how you should do it and be peaceful. But then they don't show the part half hour later where he got, you know, beaten up by the police and arrested and taken to jail. So like just being a part of that time in history to understand better what's happening. And then also the other one's kind of scary too. They're both kind of scary. I don't know what's up with me and scary, but uh, the time frame around the Boston Tea Party and declaring our country is independent from people who were trying to control and oppress us. You know what? Those are both fascinating for reasons that are not as different as you would think. Cause I think, you know, there's elements of what's going on now where, mm-hmm. I think people would think they would be in one, you know, camp. 
you know, and I say this without judgment, without, you know, sure. Alien, but I think there's people that would think are going to be in a certain camp. And I think would be very surprised if they were sucked back in time. Yeah. To realize where they really were. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so easy for us to Monday morning quarterback, all the people in history, you know, we do it, we do it with people in Germany, with the rise of Hitler. We do it with all kinds of situations where like, how did those people say or think or do this thing? And truth be told, it's a little arrogant of us here in 2020 to think that when it comes 2050, they're not going to be looking back at us and being like, how could they have said done or thought this, right? Like we are not at the end of the road as far as any form of evolving or growth or even science. Like everybody's, oh, the science is settled. Well, you know, maybe in 30 years it isn't. Like the science was settled every time somebody said something, including that the sun is going around the earth instead of the earth around the sun. Like people could die for saying it the other way and they were yep. passionate. They were passionately wrong. And so we have to always, even when we're sure we're right, maybe we could allow for a little questioning of our rightness. I would agree. Um, I think, you know, we just, we kind of lock on, we hold on to dear life for what we know. And even if we're presented with information that, you know, clearly demonstrates that there might be another way, you know, our natural instinct is to put blinders on it and be like, Oh hell no. We're not, we're not looking at that. Yeah. Um, next question. Yeah. What's the one thing that if you go without it in a day, it totally just totally wrecks it, sends it right off track. Downtime. If I'm constantly busy, it's a sign that I'm probably being unhealthy and not dealing with something. And it, it doesn't even matter if it's just five or 10 minutes. Like if I don't have a moment to breathe from when, when I get up to when I go to bed, if I don't build in a few minutes to decompress or meditate or even just whatever, call a friend and chat, just some form of downtime, it's probably not good. That's an important one. Um, I'm going to ask you this anyway. Um, <laughs> a, you know, even, you know, kind of, you know, maybe, you know, in a different time or maybe it brings back a different, a certain memory for you. Is there still, you know, any sort of a drive through that you pass by and you're still kind of like, don't turn, don't turn, don't turn, don't turn. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. I think the last one I let go of was in and out. Um, okay. Or maybe Chick-fil-A because I felt like their chicken wasn't maybe as terrible as like, like their chicken might have been better than McDonald's. McDonald's was the first one I ditched, but um, but it was so funny because it was it wasn't overnight my switch from being unhealthy to healthy, and right. so there was there was a time that the McDonald's drive through was practically a daily, and when I was finally walking away from all that, I would stop ordering the food and get like fries and a Coke, as if fries or a Coke is okay. Neither one of these is okay, right? But it just was a process. It was a letting go one, you know, and it wasn't even letting go one thing at a time, although I did. It was really just adding in healthy things because once I gave my body healthy things, then I stopped wanting the unhealthy things. And and then, so that's a whole different thing. Yeah. Right. Um, 
sitcom family from any era that you would want to adopt you? Brady Bunch. Good call. I think just I, I think I just want to hang out with Alice. Alice just <laughs> yes. Alice is so underrated. She was a big part of why I picked the Brady Bunch. Mike and Carol are great, but Alice was really taking care of the kids, and she was great. Yes, I, I would feel safe in that home. What brings joy? Primarily my kids, but then also helping people get that aha moment with coaching. Like I, I had a corporate job for over a quarter of a century and that was good. It paid the bills, but it never brought the kind of joy that when someone gets it and their eyes light up and they make change, that is so exciting. I, I really love that. Amen. What brings peace? The same two things, I think, really. My kids being safe and okay. And you know what? No. For peace, it's integrity. Knowing when I hit, when my head hits the pillow at night that I haven't done anything that I didn't, I didn't do anything inappropriate or dishonest or whatever. Like I, I s sleep knowing that I have, that I'm clean on the inside. I like, love that. Not shower wise, but like my integrity brings me peace. I love that. What brings hope? Conversations like this, right? If we can get people to have an exchange of ideas and maybe to be the first one to listen instead of demanding to be the first one to be heard. Like, I feel like even though there's a whole bunch of chaos going on, there is always hope if people are willing to, to work together and sit down and talk with each other. Absolutely. And what's the one thing you want people to think when they see or think of Jana Van Train? Um, basically a good person helping people just doing doing the best i can amen intentionalwellness.org um connect with oh. jana you know, my site's beaconroad.net um you'll yep. find my blog you find um wellness resources um you know store if you want to get cool t-shirts like this totally accidentally self-promoting <laughs> um as you well know, you should and, and you know you know, we're both on the usual social media suspects. Um, you know, come find us, come hang out, come yeah. reach out. Um, and however you got this, whether it's live on YouTube, on podcast, uh, we, you know, as much as we talk about money and we talk about stuff, the most valuable commodity that any of us has is time. We can always yeah. replace stuff. We can always replace money. Our time is limited. And for those who spent you know, an hour of that with us. It's very much appreciated. Um, Jana, thank you very much for your time. You take care of yourself. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Rich. I really All enjoyed right. the conversation. Right. Take right. care until next time. Be safe and be well. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye.